Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm the founder, Jennifer Palmer. Today I'm pleased to welcome Terry M. Brown as our guest host. Terry is an author herself and is considering if a podcast of her own is a fit for her. Until then, we're happy to have her with us. Terry's guest has served on three different school boards as a superintendent of education, principal, vice principal, teacher, and education consultant. Now retired, she continues to be active in education, teaching future educational assistants at her local college. Her professional speaking experience has been local, provincial, and international as she leads us in tackling our barriers so that we can move forward to new and exciting responsibilities. As an award-winning and best-selling author, Lynn has published in fiction, non-fiction, and is now co-authoring a children's book series with her niece titled The Power of Thought. Lynn and Amber are passionate about giving children evidence-based strategies they can use daily to build emotional intelligence. Lynn is also the host of a podcast, Taking the Helm. Now in its third year, over 100 guests share courageous stories of triumph after suffering crisis in their lives. Lynn is an active Rotarian dedicated to community causes, and she is a member of 100 Women Who Care, Windsor, Exus, and as a brain tumor survivor, works tirelessly to support the goals of the Brain Tumor Foundation of Canada. I would like to welcome Lynn McLaughlin today. She is the author of Jackson, and we're very excited to have you, Lynn. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. What is this book, Jackson? This this is a book that every single one of us should be reading because if we haven't been touched in our own lives by mental health, someone who's really struggling with mental health, we are going to be in our lifetime. There's no question about it. It's around us. Young people, children and youth struggling with anxiety now. We are on the rise. I hate to say it. And we were before the pandemic. This book is a journey of a, of a young man who is experiencing debilitating anxiety and depression and his mother who is trying to save him. And the two stories go side by side, one grappling, one grappling, one going desperation, all of it. And then the counterbalance of love and hope. Seeing the two of these characters go side by side, this is based on real life experiences. I interviewed many, many people, experiences I had with my own family as an educator to create these two characters. And it's been, it's been such a profound experience. And the feedback that we've gotten, people say, I thought I was alone, like parents. I thought I was alone. Oh my gosh. Uh, and all of the learning that happens a- along the way. And the most, I guess, powerful part of the book is the mother coming to the realization that she cannot save her son. And that is, you know, what do we do for our kids, right? Right. We, we exactly. will do anything for our kids. when, But then when they're struggling with mental health to the point where you're afraid or they have, you're afraid for their life or they have a safe plan, you want to do everything you can. But in the end, you can be there with love and support and be that safe person, but you can't save them. That And, you know, that's a hard thing as a parent, mm. whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's just emotional stress. Yeah, you know, I have uh, four children and they're now having their own children. And I watch them struggling, you know, with the having babies and, and the, the tiredness and everything. And I think, I don't know, being the the adult, a mom of an adult child is actually harder because when they're toddlers, you just pick them up and fix them. And when they're adults, you just kind of stand there and say, mm. <laughs> you 
you're right. I, I'm not a grandma yet, but I do look forward to that. I, but I have to say, I agree with you because, oh boy, some of the decisions they make, sometimes you just want to shake your head and go, wow, wow. But, but they have to, they have to live it, you know, right. and, and all, and they have to live with the consequences, both good and bad of all of their decisions. And you just get to be a bystander and, oh, yeah, I think I'd rather go back to the tired toddler days. <laughs> <laughs> so what prompted you to write this book? I was in my last six years of as a teacher. I'd been a teacher, a principal. I was in a role of superintendent. And my blanket role was special education, which had a direct connection to mental health. We had a number of students that weren't coming to school, that could only come to school for one period. Uh, one young man who stood on the sidewalk was as far as he could get every morning. And then it was on in front of the door and then it was in the front lobby. And so what did we do? We responded, right? We, we brought in mental health supports. We, in, we put child youth workers in every single school. We trained them on how to be safe people. We started to put programs in place, zones of regulation, those kinds of things. We responded. And then in my own family, you know, we, we had kids who were struggling in our own family. My nieces, my nephews, my, now my great nieces and nephews, whoever it is. And once again, we wait till we see symptoms. I can, I, you know what I liken it to is when we get that in, in Ontario, we get a letter in the mail. It's time for your colonoscopy. It's time for your mammogram. And we say, okay, let's go. <laughs> and I, and I was out for a walk one day and I said, what, what's wrong with all of this? Why are we waiting? And I went, I had one of those aha moments and my niece was just graduating from her master's of social work. And I said, will you help us move into a proactive place? This is a different set of books. Actually, it's, this is kind of all, I want to bring it all together. So now we have a book series, a children's book series that teaches kids as young as three, four, five, six, seven years old, proven strategies to manage their emotions before they're faced with these things. It's it's one, one, one piece in our toolkit. But when I published Jackson, it was, we're not alone. I, I Every parent that I had an interview with felt like they were an island, that this was just happening to them. It wasn't a conversation they wanted to have with their friends. They would be judged what's happened, what's going on behind those closed doors and all of those kinds of things. When the reality is it's hitting so many of us, we need to be talking to each other exactly. about it. So mental that book health, was, yeah, mental health for so long has been kind of a taboo subject where if you're experiencing it personally, you keep it hidden. And as a family member, you also hide it partially because the person experiencing it is hiding Yes. You know, and so and then you're hiding, too, because like you said, you have that horrible fear that, OK, somehow I'm to blame or mm -hmm. something in my household is to blame yeah. or, you know, even genetically it's to blame, you know, and you and you have that whole thing. The parent yeah. guilt. Yeah. The parent guilt is always with us. <laughs> exactly. And so June is the, the mother in in the book and she has a ton of mom guilt. Oh, yeah. Like we see mom guilt just like leaking everywhere. So why did you feel like this was an important topic to have as part of this book? Because we're all human and we all have our breaking points. And if we think that we're, you know, God, I was raised in that generation, suck it up, buttercup, you know, yeah. where you, and you become the role model and you're supposed to be perfect at everything. And yeah, it, you know, that's just not reality. <laughs> it's not reality. So to put out a character like that, who's based on real life people to say, this is real. Mom guilt is real. But what do you do with it is the question that exactly. can knock you down to the floor or you have to find a way to say, all right, this is and recognize how you're feeling. This is why I'm feeling. I don't have any control of any of this anymore. It's all in the past. What do I have control of now? 
And I don't do the shoulda, coulda, woulda, but I do talk on podcasts and radio shows, et cetera, et cetera, to try to give that perspective for young parents today to say, wait a minute, we do what we know. Hmm, I'm going to learn from this person now. <laughs> and and maybe, you know, uh, what's the word? Minimize that mom guilt as we get older. Because, right. you know, we do what we know. Like I've told my kids all the time. I honestly believe I did the very best that I could. If I could have done better, I, I would have. But given whatever tools I had at the time and whatever I personally was going through and my capacity, you know, you just do the best you can. And now that they're raising children, it's kind of like, and you're going to see it for yourself. You're going to do things sometimes and think, wow, that was really the wrong move. Right. <laughs> so one of the quote unquote wrong moves is that June and, and her husband learn that, you know, he has anxiety, but they don't really talk to him about it and yeah. give it a label. And they don't tell him until much later. Well, this struck a huge chord with me. I have a daughter, my youngest, who has Asperger's. They now would call it on the spectrum, but at the time it was Asperger's. I knew when she was pretty young and I didn't tell her because I didn't think there was any positive effect to telling her. And I knew and I was working and doing things that I felt would help support her. And I told her when she was about 12, I guess, and she started to cry mm -hmm. and said she had known for a long time that she was different. I now really wonder about should I have told her like right away, like given her her the label. And, and so I really felt for June, you know, you've got a child, an eight year old, a nine year old, a 10 year old who is diagnosed with something. What is a parent are you supposed to do with that label? That that's a tough one. And so the, the young man that I interviewed that that's part of the reason that became part of the book uh, told me that it's exactly what you just said, Terry. I knew I was different. If I knew there was a reason why it was because my brain was operating differently than everyone else, then I think it would have helped me. But, you know, easy for them to say, too, right, in, 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 in retrospect. So I don't think there's one standard answer to that. I think you talk to the professional to say, you know, what should we be doing in this circumstance? In that situation, the parent was worried about that label and what right. that label would bring and, you know, lowering the expectations because this person has some anxiety. So now we're going to, you know, so it's, there's, there's just so many things to juggle in a decision like that. It's not an easy one. I hear you. It's a tough one, but I, I guess June makes people think about it as opposed to just right away saying, oh, that's not something we're going to talk about. Right. Cause I do go back in my mind a lot and think, well, what would have happened if I had given her the label? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you don't know, you don't, yeah, you don't know and you can't yeah. know and you can't go back and change. And so, yeah, I was just curious what your thoughts were, because as I'm reading yeah. that, I thought, well, June, I understand where you came from because yeah. not, not giving the label for her was a way of protecting her son. It was a way of allowing him to have a more quote unquote normal childhood. It was a way of, you know, not giving him excuses to give in or give up or, or achieve less or all of those things. Right. Yeah. And yet he felt like he had somehow been hurt by that. And it was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. But then on the other hand, had she given him the label, he might've later said, why did you label me? If, if, if only you hadn't labeled me, if only you'd treated me like I was normal. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's, yeah. it's 
it's a tough one. It's a tough, it is. tough question, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> so I really enjoyed how you had two points of view. You know, we would be doing the same issue and, and we'd see we'd see June and we would see Jackson. And sometimes they seemed like they were pretty far apart. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. I thought that was really interesting. What what prompted you to write a book from two points of view like that, as opposed to like just focusing on Jackson or just focusing on June? Because of um, a situation with a family member, I'll just say it that way, where that was exactly happening. And the relationship was becoming more, more uh, fragmented, isn't even the word, more um, con- confrontational. It wasn't yeah. helpful at all. And so, so that parent at that point said, that's where they, they said, I need help. I need help with this. Where's the line. Right. And I go back to myself and I say, I've learned a lot of things in, in the last 10 years of my life. You know, it's taken me a long time to do it. And I went to counseling to do this myself. I found out that part of the reason my relationships with many people, you know, sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not, I'm a control freak. Well, if you're going to be a control freak in some situations, that doesn't help. How, how, do, how does a parent who's a control freak come to the, the realization that I am hurting this relationship? I am not helping this child in the situation that they're in right now, whatever it is, if it's a daily struggle, whatever it is. So when we come to that realization and say, I need help, that was the premise of, of telling the parent side of the story. And you'll notice that the father is kind of in the background, but you're not yeah. really hearing a lot of, from the father because I really thought that was going to become too complicated having three main characters. Having three, right. The premise of it was to say, when someone is going through this, they have to figure out th- things themselves. I'm talking about adult children here, right? This young man was an adult by the time things really came to a forefront. Exactly. But are we helping because we're trying to save or are we actually making things worse? And it's only by personal reflection and walking down that path with June, which encompasses the stories of several people that you get to see that grappling and how she comes to the realization that this is what I need to say. This is what I don't need to say. I, I can't do this. She was creeping on her telephone every single day, multiple <laughs> times a day to check on her son to the right. point where she was not well. Right. Mental health is a challenge and it's not just for the person struggling. And I'm not minimizing that because it's H E double toothpick for the person who's in that state of mind, all of the people around them who love them, um, you know, only want to do the what's best. And sometimes we're not. Well, and, and sometimes we're not because we don't know what to do. And sometimes we're not because we're actually following advice that isn't helpful for this particular situation. I think a lot of it is trial and error. You know, it, it didn't, it isn't working well for, for me and my son, but it worked really well for that mother and her daughter, but it isn't work. And it's because the relationship that you have is different. And so you have to be willing to kind of step back and say, okay, that didn't work. What else can we try? Like, you know. Yeah. And the hard part when you, when you, so Jackson is suicidal at, at right. one point in the book, right? When right. you have a child who's suicidal, that trial and error becomes terrifying. It does. Because it does. I because do one thing is that going to push them over the edge? If I don't answer this phone call right now, are they in crisis? You're constantly questioning your actions and decisions. And I, I just want to say there are support networks and I actually have it on my website, all kinds of information about mental health now. Um, talking to people, to other parents, to friends, to grandparents, other people who are going through it 
is a phenomenal relief because it's it's all around us, everybody. It is. So if you're holding this in and it's happening in your life, you know, read read the book if you'd like to read the book or just reach out, start your own support network of friends. You don't even have to do one formally if that doesn't make you comfortable. And then seek professional help to find out in your specific situation with that person that you love, what is your role? What is your role and what is not your role? It's right. tough. It's more than tough. Yeah. The, the, the being a parent of someone who is making decisions for whatever reason that aren't healthy for them. And you, you can't, you know, I've told people before that I got to start my children's story. I got to start the once upon a time, but they have to, they have to do the happily ever after. That's, I love that. You know, that's up to them. And it's really hard because (laughs) You know, you want very much to keep your fingers in that pie, very much want to keep, you know, making sure that 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 happily ever after happens. But at some point in there, sometime between birth and definitely long before they turn 18, you've lost that. (laughs) And and it's 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 recognizing that. And then when you add mental health issues on top of it, it makes it even harder because now you're not just dealing with, did they choose the wrong college or, or are they going down the wrong major path? But now you're dealing with things like life and death, like June was dealing with Jackson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so terrifying. do you feel that COVID has made this worse? Oh, the, the mental health. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've got research studies all over my website, one page of my website with the effects. The, the Center for Addictions and Mental Health here in Ontario, which is our largest teaching hospital, did a full report. It's absolutely had detrimental effects and getting out of that. But we were in a bad place to begin with. 70% of mental health, mental illness begins in childhood or adolescence. 70%, right? So we did what we thought was best, right? We could, well, I'll go back and say we could do it differently. But if we think about that first, you know, that first we didn't know if it was airborne, if it was on Except a we didn't know anything, right? Like, we can't forget how terrifying it was at the beginning. But we, so we created a safe place and we've told our kids being home alone in, in front of your computer is safe. And now moving them out of that is a big challenge, especially for young people who already had a level of anxiousness and anxiety. And now they're going back out into an environment that caught, that's, that's a big trigger for them. So, so to me, it's the proactive piece now. What are we doing? We know this is happening globally. What are we going to do about it rather than waiting until symptoms occur? And I'm not negating. And I love what not-for-profits are doing. There are people coming together locally who are volunteering their time, professionals outside of all of these things have to happen because we cannot rely on government to create the system change that's going to be made. We just can't. We have to do the grassroots movement from the middle to say, what are we going to do? And, and, And giving kids tools and strategies from when they're young is to me one of the, it's, it's not going to prevent it. But if every child learns five things that work for them, that's going to help them calm their bodies and mind and not have those blowups and be able to respond to all of those changing circumstances and craziness in this world, then they have five more strategies than they would have. Exactly. 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 Talk about um, this children's series that you've created. Oh yeah. my God. Such fun. So yeah, I, I called my niece on that day. I was out for a walk and she was just finishing her master's social work. And I asked her to write a book. Turns out it's two years later. It's a book series. We called it the power of thought. Um, we beam uh, everybody off to this fictional planet where all the children, all the beings glow in the color they're feeling because they haven't managed to control them yet. And each of the five books teaches a proven strategy. And they're all named after crystals. I think it's Carluni who's 
lying in bed and they all went to the park without me and oh, what did I do wrong? And now I'm left out. And then we teach, this is the book where we teach breathing as a strategy, which takes them to a place where they can rationalize and think about, all right, this could have happened and that could have happened. And, and now I have a plan to go forward. So it has been such fun. We hired an illustrator out of a secondary school. She was just graduating here locally. We print locally. It's been a phenomenal experience. And, and we shouldn't have been surprised by the feedback because I learned a lot from my niece. Oh, so much from my niece. She's basically, it's, it's taking some principles of mindfulness and cognitive behavior strategy and mm -hmm. taking it into a children's world to give them proactive, you know, tools. So we've had parents come to us and say, oh, I needed this book. Yes, I, I needed to learn this strategy. <laughs> and for me, that's what it comes down to. If we can't manage our own emotions, how in the world can we possibly model and normalize that conversation about feelings in our own home? And it's tough for some of us the way we were raised. Talking about feelings in our own home and modeling that mistakes are okay um, is really imperative. We have 271 emotional vocabulary words in the English language right now, 271. And I love the way she describes it. Kids, it's like a fuse box. You know, there's so much coming in around us 24-7 yeah. with the information, with the social media, whatever it is. Those fuses blow if we don't find a way to release them. They blow up. So why not give our kids some strategies so they can learn to manage those by modeling them ourselves? We have to learn them ourselves first. Did I do deep breathing five years ago? No. Yes, I did. Actually, before I ever talked on stage, I always did deep breathing because I thought I knew I'd pass out. I knew my trigger. I had right. a plan, but I never called it deep breathing. Deep breathing. And you, and you would have never thought to use it for a different situation, yeah, right? Exactly. You had to wait until you were almost passing out to use your deep breathing. <laughs> exactly. You got it. You got it. So that's what the series is about. And we're just, we're just loving it. No, I love that. So you have five out now. Do you plan on putting more out? We have paused at five. Um, mm -hmm. So, so here's another thing with COVID. Um, I've published using hybrid. I published using a publishing house. Um, we, I think we sought out 87 agents. Uh, most, most of them were shut down during COVID yeah. or they weren't taking any new clients. So we decided to self-publish, which has been a phenomenal experience. Um, I, I, I pretty much know the ropes through that, but we would, if we're going to do five more books and we already have the titles in mind, we know, already know exactly what mm -hmm. we would do. We would like to go through a formal, formal, uh, publishing, uh, right contract with that. Yeah. Right. We were offered a contract and for all of the authors out there, <laughs> when you do some research, the independent authors association, if that's the way you go, they have a watch list. You need to check that watch list. Absolutely. The one who was making us an offer was in the red and it, nope. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, it, it is scary out there trying to find, you know, you, you want to, you want to be published and, and they, there are people that will prey on that definitely there will are. prey on that. And you're so excited about the idea of being published that you just kind of jump at it. And you have to, you're right, you have to be very careful. I, I, I don't think a local author would mind. She's actually uh, launched a lawsuit uh, against a company who said they were traditional, who are clearly not traditional, but they still own the rights to her book. She's published, I think, 11 before then, but she went with a different publisher. She mm -hmm. can't do anything now. That beautiful book she was about to do a launch for is dead in the water until she resolves this lawsuit. So yes, oh, caution everybody. Yeah. Do your research. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Kind of go back to, you know, Jackson. We've got his mom saw things when he was young. Mm -hmm. And they and they did things for him. They said, okay, well, we need to take him and have him evaluated and all the other stuff. 
as a parent, what do you need to be looking for? Like what is considered a mental health issue versus my kid is just being a brat or my kid is just, do you know what I'm saying? Because you don't want to label everything as anxiety when it could, I don't know, just be like temper tantrum. Yeah. Yeah. Temper tantrum or, you know, because, because kids aren't always well-behaved. I mean, you know, they have their, their, they're allowed to be just like we are. I'm yep. not always well-behaved. So, yep. you know, yep. so what, what constitutes a mental health problem? What does a parent look for? I think you follow your gut for one okay. thing. Uh, there are checklists all over. You go to any ch- child mental health website, you'll see the checklist of what's considered the norms at certain ages. You know, you right. expect temper tantrums at the age of two. You follow your gut, though, and if you see things happening that um, where your child is becoming withdrawn or not engaging in things that they used to be or more nervous or not eating properly, not sleeping properly, those are all signs that something's going on inside of them and they likely don't even know what it is themselves. They're okay. going to need some help through that. So there, what, what, there's no problem going to talk to a doctor, going to a walk and going just, just have a consult to say, uh, this seems a little bit off right now. What can I do about it? And there may not be a diagnosis, but there may be some five or six strategies that you could put in place at that time to become aware of or have that child identify, well, yeah, this happened today. And then you start to talk about it. You make it normalized. What can we do about it? You help them solve the problem. And as they get older, it looks different. But we need to follow our guts. And the other thing that I've learned, uh, my goodness, trauma comes in so many different ways. Trauma for a young person could be um, a parent who's a shift worker and they don't see them for a month at a time call that separation anxiety we used to, right? Um, So we might think what's going on here, what's going on here? And we're looking for so obvious solutions, but sometimes it's not so obvious. If we have a child who's ill, um, my own daughter had a traumatic experience in a hospital, which until two years later, when she wrote about it in a journal entry at school, we didn't realize it was traumatic. So so if there's a situation where our child or our children are in, I don't know, they've witnessed something, they've seen something happen, they've become ill, they've then very, there, there could be something happening inside of them where they're becoming fearful or nervous. And we can work on those things early. We can do things for young children like art therapy, play therapy, music therapy, lots of different things so they can get it out and be able to cope rather than waiting until we see the symptoms. It goes back to the symptoms, right? Rather than waiting yeah. until they're an adult and pulling all their hair out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or, there's, or yeah, or they start to look for external gratification through things that cause addictions, right? right. Which happens right. with Jackson. Jackson's always looking for something to solve his problem, solve his problem, solve his problem without realizing that this is how he solved his, solves his problem right. by using his, right. you know, his own mind. There's a, there's a lot of the, the idea of almost a self-medicating, you know, they're, they're looking for something that helps this, the crazy that's, that's happening in their heads. And momentarily something like drugs or alcohol appear to, to handle that, like for at least a a short period of time, it's like, and that's Mm -hmm. what starts that addiction is, is that you keep seeking after those moments of, of you know, what feel like calm or, or clarity or whatever it is, where would a parent or, or even just a a friend with someone else who's a peer to theirs, where do they look to find good resources, good places to, to go? Or, or what if they go to a doctor and the doctor just kind of blows them off? Where do they look to find the, the help that they need? 
I, I would go to a children's mental health network. I would call a pediatrician. You, sometimes you need a referral to get to a pediatrician. Right. But if you if your gut is telling you something's off and your family doctor or clinician says no, then seek additional help. There, you, there are 24-7 call services. There's uh, mental health support networks that are out there. There is a mental health first aid course. It's on my website with a link that you can take for free through Ontario. So you can understand what when do I... And, and I have assist training, suicide intervention training as well through through the work that I did. When when is it I'm okay to just listen and leave? When is it okay? But I'm not going anywhere until someone else is home. And when is it okay to say nope? Uh, you're coming with me to the hospital, or I'm calling an ambulance, right? So right. Th- that kind of course really helps you to differentiate and know what to say and what not to say. Right. I know that as a parent, I've had children with different issues, some medical and, you know, where you bring it to the doctor and you're kind of patted on the head, you know, Mm. they're there, there's nothing really wrong and, you know, go on home, but you know that something is wrong and you have to, you have to really fight. Sometimes you have to really be the advocate and you have to really say, I know my child better than you do. The number of times that I have looked at a doctor and said, I know that you are the medical professional and you know medicine more than I do, but I know my child better than you know my child and I'm telling you something is wrong, you know, and you have to. So I would maybe the same kind of thing if you see something mental health wise to say, I don't know anything about mental health, but I know my kid. Yeah. And the other thing I would suggest is document write down what you are, what you're observing. You bring that in in writing and you hand it to the doctor and you do that over a two to two weeks or a month before your appointment. Uh, that's written evidence in front of them. That's, that's a little bit different than the parent who needs to appease, be, be appeased because they think we're overreacting. Right. Right. <laughs> because there is a lot of that, you know, don't be such an overreactive helicopter parent, you know? Um, and, True. you know, oh, this is nothing, pat, pat, pat. And it's like, but it is something. I, I know that it's something. Like, the, Yeah, and the, I just had another feeling. thought, too. Because if you're seeing it in your own home, they might not be seeing it in the school, but there might be other things that are happening in school. So kids who are anxious very much will hold that all in until they come home to their safe place and blow exactly. up, right? Which is what right. happens when Jackson is younger. But if you have conversations with other people that are seeing your child on a regular basis, what might be happening behind the scenes there? Because very often these are the kids that are sitting in class. They're not being noticed because they're not a problem. They're not, be, they're not acting out. They're just sitting there holding it all in. They're, yeah. They're, you they're, know, they're holding it all in. So right. I would have those conversations too. And uh, in Ontario, there are checklists that teachers will fill out for us as well that we can bring with us to see a doctor to say, this is what's happening in the school. Yeah. Everything looks fine here, but this is what I'm seeing. So. Right. Right. Because. Yeah. I think that's another thing for parents to understand is, you know, you see a child who's maybe acting out in one situation and not in another. And so you just start making assumptions that, well, the child can behave and they're just choosing not to in this situation. Mm -hmm. Maybe step back and say, maybe they're choosing to hold it all in, in the good situation. And they're, they're letting you see, you know, what's actually happening to them. And, you know. and that's a perfect example of you let that child go through that emotion. We used to do timeouts. I use timeouts with my kids all the time. Yeah. Timeout was a great thing, except the next step was missing. <laughs> you know, yes, you use a strategy to calm them down. We don't send them to their rooms anymore. I understand all of that piece. 
you there has to be a point where there's a conversation as a teaching tool and that's why our books are so often awesome because you can yeah. pull them in and say this just happened maybe we could use this strategy next time to say all right why do you think you felt that way name it to tame it they say it and feel it to heal it why do you think you feel felt that way and then ask questions now right. when you feel what what can we do to help you manage it and then you start to model it if it's deep breathing you say let's take some deep breaths and you do the deep breathing like so, so it comes down to helping them figure themselves out when they're young. Right, right. It's, this is an interesting conversation because mm -hmm. I have a grandchild right now who's four years old, sweet little thing, but she and her mom are like at loggerheads right now. Mm -hmm. And she's she's gotten a little bit mouthy and sassy and and she and I have been talking about feelings. I've been calling her on the phone every morning. And, and we talk, well, how did yesterday go? And, yeah. and I'll say things like, well, let's talk about that. Like she decided that, that biting was going to be her answer. And so, you know, we talked about, well, you know, you were obviously, what, were you angry? Were you sad? No, I was angry. Okay. Do you know it's okay to be angry? Yes. And she said, no. Yeah. And I said, it is. It's perfectly fine to be angry. But it's not perfectly fine to bite, you, you, know? Got it. <laughs> you know, you know, so we need to come up with something else to do Yeah. when Perfect. we're feeling that anger, you know, and it's like, and I know as a parent, that's hard because you're in the middle of the moment and you're trying to stop your four-year-old from biting yeah. and now, and you've got the baby on the hip and the two-year-old running around and you, you gotta know, get through that moment. Your, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's something really valuable that I believe society is missing. We used to have grandmothers and great grandmothers and mothers and children all in the same general vicinity. And mm. the older ones could help yes. kind of like reach in. I, wow. as a grandparent, I have a very different relationship with my granddaughter than I did with my own children because I don't have to be as intimately involved in the day to day. I also have a lot more experience. I I have more patience because I don't feel overcrowded and overrun and overexhausted. And it's like we kind of miss that in the way that we do community now that we're trying to do it all by ourselves. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're missing uh, my three out. kids are, I got one in Indonesia, one in Australia and one on the East coast. Like, exactly. so I, I, I don't know what we're going to do when we have grandchildren. You're um, going to do a lot of zooming. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> you know, I, I love conscious parents. So I have a podcast too, and uh, it's all about emotional well-being for kids and conscious parenting, uh, peaceful parenting, whatever you want to call it. I love the premise of it, but people have a total misunderstanding that it doesn't come with consequences. It absolutely comes with consequences. It comes with guidelines. It very often comes with choices. So the other thing, when we when we have kids, I, I want to get to choices because as a teacher, as a principal, this was so powerful. If we back kids into a corner, we're going to lose. Right. <laughs> Somebody's going to lose. And that's not what it's all about. Even two-year-olds need, need a sense of control. We need a sense of control. So as opposed to saying we're heading off to the store right now, you say, oh, we're going to the store in a minute. What would you like to do? Would you like, to, what would you like to wear? Um, go and pick out your outfit for the day and you give them some choices. Right. Um, when a student's right. being defiant, you don't take them on in that moment. You acknowledge that something's upsetting. I see that you're upset. We're going to need to talk about this. First, you need to calm down. What is it that works for you? What's the choice? 
Then right. you have a conversation after they've calmed down. Kids who refuse to go to bed, they're going to go to bed, but you're going to walk them through a process to make sure they're going to go to bed. They don't get to say, I'm feeling sad, so I don't want to go to bed. No, it doesn't work that way. Right, right, right. right. So, it's like, okay, so you're feeling sad. Let's let's discuss that. Now you yeah. go to bed. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> what is next for you? We're really trying to promote the five book series. Mm -hmm. We just did a, a a local radio show called Experts on Call, talking on podcasts as much as possible. Really, it's it's to get these books in the hands as of as many organizations. Um, specifically in North America, but globally, we would like to get some sponsorship and funding to do the translations, uh, to make an app, to actually create an app to help help kids, like throw them into a situation, maybe even the whole VR thing around emotional ma management. Um, but all of that requires some funding. It's really right. about upping, upping, and upping the level of the game to say, all right, this is awesome. Everybody who's read the books, who's using the books, whether it's in schools or in their own homes, just saying, thank you very much. Now, how do we make it more visible in yeah. the world of competition? <laughs> right. And, and and that whole marketing aspect of, of yeah. putting books out there is, yeah, almost mm. overwhelming, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's constantly changing. I used to help authors with their launch plan and, and with their marketing, but the rules of the game are constantly changing. Yeah. Now I send people to gurus, right? Facebook marketing changes, uh, Amazon, all, they all, it's just, they, well, and they up. change, they change so rapidly that you can, you can be on the game and wake up the next morning and realize, oh, yeah, everything changed. I don't yeah. know what to oh, do they just now. changed the iOS rules. Yeah. Oh, shocks, huh. and that just killed my promotion. <laughs> yeah. There that goes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how can readers get in contact with you? Uh, by Jackson, by your series of children's books. Everything is at lynnmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. There's a store there. Uh, we're going to put the children's book series on a 20% uh, sale actually very soon. So it'll just be up for sale. You don't even need a discount code. We offer free okay. shipping in the United States and Canada for orders over $35. So a children's book series is over $35. Free shipping is included. We have eBooks and Jackson is the winner of the best audiobook for fiction in 2022 from the independent press. It's all also available in uh, audiobook through anywhere you buy audiobooks, Audible, yeah. Amazon. Yeah, it's all there. You know, the author hat, doesn't matter which hat we have on, parent hat, grandparent hat, self-compassion. When I mentioned what Amber was teaching me, it really is about self-compassion. We're all human. We're all learning. We're all making mistakes. And I think the most important thing is if we're consciously aware of that and can say with a sense of curiosity, what can I do to change this? Then that's the first step. And maybe it's simply becoming aware that I personally am blowing up. Why am I blowing up? What am I going to do about that? What strategies can I use? Right. And then modeling for our kids. So self-compassion is my, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Lynn, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad that we were able to meet. And and if you write more of these books, let me know because we'll have you back on again. I will. Thank you all so right. much, Terry. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.